It's very easy when you just have one verse to read. Let's read and then we'll pray. This is the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 7. You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are holy and good, and your word is holy and good and pure and altogether right and lovely. I pray that you would help us to hear and take away all the good things you want us to have through your word and the preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Last week we looked at God's instructions to wives through the Apostle Peter. In this verse that we'll consider this morning, Peter turns his attention to husbands. And I have to say that what this one verse command lacks in length, I believe it more than makes up for in urgency. We husbands need to hear and understand and act upon what we find in this critically important command. Now, I know that many of you here this morning are not married. Some may never be married until Christ returns and claims the church as his bride. But that certainly does not mean that these instructions to wives and husbands have no relevance to you. I'd hazard to say that nobody in this room is a slave by profession. But Peter's instructions in the previous chapter to slaves about patiently enduring, for Christ's sake, unjust treatment at the hands of those who were in authority over them, has those instructions have very great relevance to all of us. Because God has put every one of us in the context of relationships that require our submission either to godless people or to believers who aren't so great at exercising their authority over us in a godly manner. One of the most instructive things that I believe we can glean by looking at 1 Peter 3, verse 7, has to do with what we think it should say, but that it does not say. The wife was just directly commanded in the preceding six verses to submit to her husband's headship. But when Peter turns his attention to husbands, there's not a single word about how the husband is supposed to get her to do that. Not a word. So how are you as a husband supposed to handle it when your wife resists your headship. Certainly God knows that happens. How are you supposed to handle it when you make a decision that affects your wife and she simply won't have it? How far does God authorize you to go to get her to do what He clearly commands her to do? Surely if we look hard enough, look around a little bit, we'll find a passage that answers that question, right? If you bounce over to Ephesians 5 and verses 21 and following, you'll find another well-known, often quoted passage that directly and unequivocally 
commands every believing wife to submit to her husband's God-given headship over her, just as the church is called to submit to the headship of Christ. But when that passage turns its attention to the husbands, there's not a single word about how the husband is supposed to enforce that headship over his wife. Instead, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Sounds like kind of a toothless authority, doesn't it? All right, well, let's flip over to another one. Colossians 3, verses 18 and following. It's yet another passage in which there's a very clear, very direct command to the wives to submit to their husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Okay, then it gets to the husbands. Surely we'll find it here. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Where's the teeth? You can scan every page of the New Testament and you will not find a passage that tells husbands how to enforce that headship over their wives to which God clearly and repeatedly commands wives to submit. We look at that and we think, okay, wait a minute, God. You're giving me a responsibility to lead my wife, but you're not authorizing me to enforce her submission to that leadership. And that's when I think God says to us, now you're starting to get it. Well, let's think about this more. There must be a passage somewhere that tells those who have been entrusted with the sacred task of headship or leadership in some context, how to enforce it. Either in the family or in the workplace or in the church, in some context, there's got to be something that tells us what to do when we get resistance. Well, the closest one I can find is in 1 Peter 5, a couple of chapters after this. It's directed to elders. It commands in chapter 5 verses, well, specifically, I want to look at verse 3, but it's in, ver- uh, excuse me, verses uh, 1 through 3, roughly, 1 through 4. It commands elders to shepherd the flock of God willingly, not under compulsion, not for personal gain. And it tells them to exercise oversight over God's household. But when it gets to the how, when it gets to the how, here's what it says. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And there you have it. See, the essence of the how, when it comes to exercising God-given headship, has nothing to do with ensuring a responsive submission on the part of the one from whom God commands that submission. Instead, the very heart of how you exercise God-given headship is by being an excellent example of submission to your head. Husbands, The fact that God commands your wife to respect you and to willingly submit to your leadership does not mean that you have His authorization or even His permission to demand her respect and submission to you. You have neither. 
There are many ways to chip away at the fortress walls of a good marriage, to gradually tear down that which makes the marriage strong. But there's a particular weapon in Satan's arsenal for wrecking marriages that doesn't just chip away gradually at those walls, like a catapult hurling stones from a distance. Instead, this attack comes as a very familiar friend who gets invited right through the front door as a welcome guest. But it turns out that this friend is a very crafty enemy who's skillfully concealing a destructive bomb. He comes in, he places that bomb in a strategic place, and then he sits down and has a lovely dinner with you and your wife. And then as he's driving off, he hits the detonator, and he destroys your marriage from the inside out, leaving nothing but rubble. And the reason this powerful enemy gets invited in so readily is because it looks and sounds not just harmless, but good. Not just good, but godly. This powerful enemy of marriage that I'm talking about is the conviction on the part of the husband that he has been, again, he has been given authority directly by God to demand his wife's submission. Husband says to his wife, either explicitly or through his actions, Okay, wife, you and I both know that God commands you to submit to me, not just in this passage, but several passages, over and over. Since God commands your submission to me, if I just let you ignore that command, I'd be working against God. I'd be abandoning my God-given calling as spiritual head over you. Ephesians 5 even says, I'm supposed to present you spotless and blameless to Christ, following His example. How can I possibly do that if I'm letting you bail out on God's clear assignment to you in this marriage? I owe it to God, and I owe it to you to hold your feet to the fire on this and make sure you actually do what God has told you to do. Sounds pretty convincing, doesn't it? Sounds pretty spiritual. But it's dead wrong. God never, ever, ever commands the husband to make his wife keep her God-given assignment to submit to him. And by the way, he never, ever, ever commands the wife to make her husband keep his God-given assignment to love her and honor her. In fact, we just saw in the last passage that God explicitly told the believing wife not to take it upon herself to make her husband obey God's Word. There's a really, really good reason for all of this. Men, the reason you don't get to make your wife keep her, her assignment from God is very simple. The Holy Spirit has no interest in giving His seat to you. Philippians 2.13 says, It is God who is at work in us, and that includes in your wife, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. It's not you. It's Him. 
You have zero sovereignty over your wife's heart. God's not going to give you his job. What's your job? Your job is to do your assignment. Not to make your wife do hers. And vice versa. I am absolutely convinced that that one exceedingly simple principle all by itself would save most struggling Christian marriages and revolutionize them for Christ. Do your assignment and don't worry about whether your spouse does his or hers. That's God's problem. Husband, God might use your godly behavior to nudge your wife toward godliness. He told the wife that he might use hers to nudge the husband. But whether he does or does not bring such a change about in the heart of your wife is none of your business. It has zero impact. Her response has zero impact on God's command to you to love your wife and to give yourself up for her just as Christ did for you. Think of it this way. If Jesus, who was the perfect example of everything that he commanded his disciples to do, showed them forbearance and forgiveness and steadfast love all the way to the cross, which he certainly did, then how forbearing and forgiving and loving do you suppose God requires you to be toward your wife when she finds it hard to submit to your sin-corrupted headship? It is imperative, husbands, that you get your assignment right, even if your wife never takes her assignment from God seriously. So let's look closely at what Peter says our assignment is as husbands. What does this verse require us to do? Well, the likewise at the very beginning of the verse points back to chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. It points to the example of Christ, just like the likewise did at the beginning of the instruction to the wife. You are to treat your bride as Christ has treated his bride, his church. In short, those verses... Verses 21 to 25 of chapter 2 speak of Christ's self-denying, sacrificial, redeeming love. Those verses actually refer back to the passage we were looking at this morning in the worship, Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. To Christ's sacrifice in our place. It was by His wounds that we were healed and restored to the shepherd and guardian of our souls. And he endured those wounds without advocating for himself in any way. Romans Romans, uh, 15, uh, Christ did not please himself. 15, 1 and 2. He did not please himself. The specifics of how Peter tells husbands to follow Christ's marvelous example are somewhat different here than they are in other passages, especially in the Pauline passages. There are three parts to Peter's command as I see it. First, do life with your wife. Second, study your wife so that you may live with her in an understanding manner. And finally, honor your wife as a fellow heir of the grace of life. 
The first thing you'll notice in Peter's command to live with your wives in an understanding manner is that we husbands are called to live with our wives. <laughs> live with your wife does not mean park your cars in the same garage and then mostly ignore each other. It does not mean delegate the raising of your children to your wife and then check in with her for a couple of minutes every month or so to see how it's going. It means live together with your wife. It means do life with your wife. Now that implies a couple of things. First, you don't get to bail out when you perceive that your marriage isn't working out so well for you. You know what God has to say to husbands when they say, I just don't love my wife anymore? The fire is gone. Here's what God says. Proverbs 5.18 Delight yourself in the wife of your youth. Brothers, that's not a suggestion. It's a command. It means when your wife has ceased to be delightful to you, the ball is decisively in your court to fix that emotional deadness in your marriage on your side. You must choose to delight yourself in your wife by the power that the Holy Spirit continually gives you to do whatever God commands you to do. Divorce? That word should not be in your vocabulary. But please hear me when I say this. Divorce is not an option, but loveless coexistence is not an option either. Whether it's peaceful or not so peaceful, loveless coexistence is not an option for the believing husband in terms of how he deals with his wife. I can't tell you how many times I've heard or heard of believing men say in, saying in effect, Okay, if God demands that I persevere in living with my wife, I'll just have to get used to being married without love or without joy. Because she has made it impossible for me to love her. She won't even receive my love. And she has certainly made our marriage joyless. God says to that husband, wrong. If she is, in, in fact, impossible for you to love, then guess what? You are impossible for me to love. And brothers, if God ever concluded that you were impossible for Him to love, you would be forever condemned. But God did not make you the object of His eternal, unfading love because you were worthy of it. He didn't do that because you were so lovable. You were a sinner. You were an enemy. You were helpless and hopeless. And you were dead. And He made you alive so that He could spend the rest of eternity loving you. He chose before the foundations of the world to love you. Period. And as, as the undeserving object of His steadfast covenant love, He has given you an assignment. You're here to be His image bearer. You're here to love others as He has loved you. And your number one priority in that assignment is to love your wife as Christ has loved you.
Anytime you lose track of what that expects of you, go look at the cross again. And it'll become crystal clear. You're called to do life with your wife, not just to occupy the same house, but to do life together with her. God has made you one flesh with her. You don't get to build a wall between you and her to minimize the pain that is inherent in actually doing life with another human being. Do you actually think God doesn't know how painful that is? You think He doesn't know how painful it is to have to deal with someone else's sin and selfishness day in and day out? (laughs) Guys, the Holy Spirit has to live in you every moment of every day. He knows what it's like. Be together with your wife in life. Pray often with her. Have at least one ministry that you do together as a team. Be in the mix often when it comes to raising your kids. Talk with her about how you handle your finances. Not as enemies, but as co-workers for the kingdom of God. That's what your finances should be about. And be very intentional about delighting yourself physically in your wife and making sure that that physical love is delightful to her as well. Do life with your wife. The second thing to note in Peter's command to husbands that is central to this verse is that it requires us to study our wives. How are you going to live with your wife in an understanding way if you don't understand her? Now, I get the fact that that's not what you'd call a fully attainable goal. In large measure, women will remain a mystery to me at least until we're in heaven. I mean, come on. How can a woman... Think about this for a minute, guys. How can a woman see a mint condition 1970 350 cubic inch Chevelle Supersport cranberry red with dual white racing stripes get completely demolished at the end of a movie chase scene and not even have to reach for a Kleenex? (laughs) Just doesn't make any sense. There are wonderful mysteries in the distinction between men and women that will probably never be any less mysterious to us as men. But God has given husbands an assignment to live with our wives in an understanding manner. Literally, to live with our wives according to knowledge. Intimate, personal knowledge. And that assignment demands very real effort on our parts. Not grudging effort, loving effort. If you're going to live with your wife in an understanding way, you need to know all that you can know about what makes her tick. You need to be intimately acquainted with who your wife is, what delights her, what grieves her, what provokes fear or insecurity in her. Not... Not so you can steadfastly avoid saying or doing anything that rubs her the wrong way, but so that when you must do so for Christ's sake, you will know how your words and actions are likely to affect her even 
before you speak and act. That will dramatically impact how you go about saying and doing the things that you know will be painful for your wife. And on the plus side, it will make you much more adept at saying and doing the things that genuinely encourage and build your wife up in Christ. Getting to that level of personal understanding of another human being takes time. And it demands diligent study. doesn't happen by osmosis. You have to intend to go after that kind of understanding. You have to work at it. It is a beautiful labor of love if you do it. When you really deeply know and understand your wife, you will not often be surprised by her responses, at least not terribly surprised. If you do find yourself surprised at her reaction to something that you've said or done or to a certain situation, that means you need to sit down with her and talk about that surprising reaction. Not just walk away scratching your head and hoping for a more predictable response next time. Above all, you need to listen to what she says to you and carefully observe what she does. I love my wife profoundly. And to my amazement, her love for me seems at times to make mine look tepid. But I believe my greatest lapse in our relationship for many years is that I didn't really listen to her with the goal of understanding her. The listening part of my conversations with her was far too often focused mostly on making sure that she understood me instead of that I understood her. It wasn't that I didn't hear or consider her words. I've learned a lot from my wife since the day I met her. But for a long time, I did not really listen with the purpose of understanding so that I might live with my wife in an understanding manner for Christ's sake. Fortunately, one of the things I did understand about my wife almost immediately after I met her nearly 33 years ago is that she is one of the most forgiving and forbearing souls I would ever meet. Love covers a multitude of sins because godly love forgives. After instructing husbands to live with wives in an understanding way, Peter amplifies that command by saying that we are to do that as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman. Now, husbands won't even get started at obeying this assignment from God if we expect women to think and act the same way we do. Now, that may strike you as so self-evident that it's a waste of time to even say it, but... I would submit that much of the strife that goes on in marriages results from the expectation that from both husbands and wives that our spouses are supposed to think and react the same way we do. But they don't. When, and it starts early. When my daughter was about three years old and my son was about two, I walked into Jessica's room one day when, where the two of them were playing together. Jessie was holding one of her Barbie dolls and she had about three other Barbies arranged on her bed and they were clearly having a tea party together. 
And she was channeling their voices, and it was really cute. You know, she'd go from one to the other, and her voice would change with each one. Jeff was also holding a Barbie doll by the feet with the head pointed at Jesse, and he was making gunshot sounds with his mouth and bouncing the doll up and down as if it was recoiling after each shot. At that point in his life, Jeff didn't own even so much as a squirt gun, but he had a 45 caliber semi-automatic Barbie. I'm sure he was completely baffled as to why Jesse didn't acknowledge that she'd been mortally hit or at least flip her Barbie around and return fire. A one-sided gunfight is so boring. I suspected from that day forward that whatever struggles my children might face in life, gender identity would not be one of them. And I was right. Men and women are different from the get-go. And some of those difference, some of those differences manifest themselves in the form of different vulnerability. Some would say that if Peter lived in modern times, he would have radically adjusted what he says here. Of course, these days, as you know, even suggesting that because a wife happens to be a woman, she is thus a weaker vessel, puts you on a fast track to cultural oblivion. (laughs) But you and I know that if Peter was writing this epistle to the church today, he wouldn't change a thing. Because he's speaking for Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. And people are pretty much the same as they've been for ever since Adam and Eve, too. The outward manifestation of our sin gets tweaked a little bit from generation to generation to reflect what's going on in the culture. But the underlying sins remain the same. Go read the list in the last couple of paragraphs in Romans 1. You'll see what I'm talking about. There's nothing new there. Peter's declaration here that the wife is the weaker vessel in the marriage is not a culture-bound declaration. It's a timeless truth. But the wording actually says something about husbands that we may not like to admit. I love how John MacArthur levels the playing field a little bit on this matter of weakness. He says, Men, this verse doesn't say your wife is weak. It says between the two of you, your wife is weaker. You know what that means for you? It means you're weak. So don't get all full of yourself. In what ways is a wife weaker than her husband? Well, we should notice that Peter doesn't answer that question here at all. Not a word. We could talk about general differences between men and women when it comes to physical strength and the ramifications of that or when it comes to the relative emphasis that one of the sexes generally places on emotion versus reason when it comes to making decisions. I believe those sorts of specifics are worth pondering, but only as they apply in your specific marriage relationship if you're married. Spending time with this command over the last week or so has caused me to prayerfully think about how I might be failing to see or to consider certain ways in which my beloved wife's vulnerabilities demand greater sensitivity and care on my part. 
And as I was in the midst of thinking about that, my sister-in-law raised a point last Wednesday in our discussion about this message that uh, shifted my mental gears a little bit. And that is that uh, weakness does not inherently imply any difference in value at all. It can imply the opposite. A Ming vase is both exceedingly vulnerable and exceedingly valuable. And the very things that make that vase valuable are the things that make it vulnerable. I believe that at the very least, that's part, that's an important component of what Peter's talking about here. There are many ways in which a wife, particularly a godly wife, is inherently in a place of greater vulnerability than her husband. Precisely because of the whole headship and submission issue. If you simply tie this verse back to the passage that came just before it, verses 1 through 6 of 1 Peter 3, you'll quickly see an important connection. A woman who obeys God's instruction in the first six verses will willingly be placing herself at greater risk of harm at the hands of her husband than a woman who makes her own physical and emotional self-preservation her top priority. At some level, that vulnerability comes into play even if her husband is a believer. If your wife, brothers, if your wife keeps God's assignment in the preceding six verses, there will be times when she will suffer at your hands for doing so. Simply because you and I are still doing battle daily against the sinful, selfish habits of our old nature. So you must live with your wife with diligent, deliberate understanding of what it means to be in her position in your marriage. Having said all that, if we're going to be true to this passage of Scripture, we need to acknowledge that Peter does not expand on the kind of weakness that's involved here. So let's move forward and try to keep the focus where Peter keeps it. First thing that Peter has told us to do, I believe, is to do life with your wife. Husband, do life with your wife. Be in it with her. Secondly, study your wife so that you may live with her in an understanding manner. Finally, honor your wife as a fellow heir of the grace of life. What a beautiful command. What does that mean? Well, it means that you are to show her the honor that is appropriate to someone who bears that title, fellow heir of the grace of life. Okay, what is that? What's a fellow heir of the grace of life? Well, some very respected Bible teachers consider this to be talking about God's common grace rather than about his saving grace. In other words, they believe this is referring to the things that God graciously gives to all mankind, like children and family and friendship and physical provision for each day. The reason that they conclude that is because the big picture theme throughout this part of the epistle has 
been all about how we as believers handle submission to ungodly authorities, to secular governments, to uh, slaves to, to unjust, evil masters, wives to husbands who are disobedient to the Word of God, the Word of the Gospel. So the assumption uh, that those teachers are making is that Peter is staying on the same track here and he's talking about a believing husband who's married to an unbelieving wife. I respect that position, but, I, but I, my conclusion is different than that. Based on the wording in verse 7, I believe Peter has shifted gears and he is addressing the believing husband who's married to a believing wife. And that is the lead-in then to what he says in the following verses to all believers when he says to sum up, starting in verse 8. I looked up every occurrence of the word heir and inheritance in the New Testament epistles, and every single one of them is talking about our future inheritance in Jesus Christ. And the word fellow heir that's used here is especially focused in its meaning. It means heir together with. It always refers to someone who shares the future inheritance of Christ with Christ and with every other believer. That's what a fellow heir is in the New Testament. Romans 8.17 says, We who are children of God are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The exact same word. And this verse says that a believing husband is to treat his wife as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Doing life with a fellow heir of God's gracious gift of eternal life in Christ, when that heir happens to be the person you're married to, is a tricky business. But it's a richly blessed business. It's tricky because that fellow heir whose words and actions so directly affect you every single day is still doing battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil just like you are. And on some days, she may appear to be losing that battle. So it gets tricky. But it's richly blessed because that fellow heir of the gracious gift of eternal life who shares your kids, your bed, and your checkbook with you is a walking, talking, dwelling place of the living God. You are to recognize her no longer according to the flesh, but according to her marvelous identity as a co-inheritor with you of all that belongs to Jesus Christ. I've shared this with you before, but some things bear repeating. And of course, if you know me, you know I believe a lot of things bear repeating. When it comes to the matter of heirship, of inheritance, God has no second-born sons and no daughters. Stick with me. Many of you are aware that in biblical times, the first-born son in a family received a double portion of the inheritance of the father's estate. So if a man had four sons, he would divide his estate not into four equal parts, but into five. And when he died, his will or his blessing upon his sons would bequeath 
two parts to the firstborn son and one part to each of the other three sons. His daughters got no part of his estate. They were to be provided for through husbands, which made it, uh, it, it added a very unromantic urgency to the issue of marriage if you happen to be a young woman with an aging father. But beloved, for us who are in Christ, all of us, that whole inheritance plan has been replaced with just one exceedingly simple category. Joint heirs in Christ. Galatians 3.26-29 puts it this way, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You ladies, you're sons too. Firstborn sons. When it comes to inheritance. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The only reason any of us here has an inheritance in the kingdom of God is because Jesus does. And we are found to be in Him. His inheritance has become our inheritance. And when you get right down to it, God has just one heir because He has one unique Son. We husbands whose wives are children of the Most High God, are in a miraculous situation. We are in a miraculous situation every day of our lives. We are married to fellow heirs of the gracious gift, which is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Husband, you should celebrate that and rejoice in that every day that you are privileged to spend in the God-made one flesh union that you have been so graciously given. A union with a precious child of God with whom you get to share your sojourn on this earth until you stand face to face with your Savior and Master beside that joint heir. Peter finishes by saying that if we rightly honor our wives as fellow heirs of the grace of life, our prayers will not be hindered. It should be pointed out that the the failure of a believing husband to rightly honor his wife is not the only way that his prayers may become hindered. We'll see in greater detail next week, right after this, that Peter cites several verses from Psalm 34. One of those verses says, For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. All sin hinders our prayers. If the Holy Spirit, either directly or through the Word of God or through a fellow believer, is convicting you of a sin 
and you're ignoring or rejecting that conviction, God is not listening until you repent. But it's important for us to recognize that while those other passages are talking about sin in general terms, this one is talking about a very specific sin that will shut down our prayers in the ears of God. That should get our attention. This command carries a whole lot of weight with God. Husbands, don't expect your pleadings with God to get attention from Him if you are not obeying the command to honor your wife. This is a big deal to God. It needs to be a big deal to every believing husband. Following the example of Jesus Christ toward His bride, you were to do life with your wife, real life on God's terms. You were to study your wife so that you may live with her in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, since she is that precious, mysterious, wonderful gift from God that Adam named woman. And you are to grant her honor as a fellow heir of the gracious gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus with whom you will spend eternity. Dear Father, thank you for this command to us as husbands. Thank you for all that it, that it implies for us in other relationships as well. But Father, this is a special, a special relationship that you have created. It's a blessing. It's a picture of the bond between Christ and His church. Teach us, Father, to handle it well. That the world may look at our marriages. That they may look at us as husbands and be drawn to Christ because they see how He has laid down His life for His bride. We ask this in Jesus' precious name.